So this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about fear, uh, which is a very personal topic for me. And I know what some of you might be feeling like of, I'm just tired of hearing about fear. <laughs> we've, we've heard this word a thousand, a million times probably in the last few months. Uh, but one of the things that I've seen is, you know, a lot of the ways that the word is being used today isn't being used in a way that builds one another up, right? So that's not what we're going to do this morning. We are going to build one another up as the body of Christ. So as we start this, the, the spot that I want to start is talking about trials. Why does God allow trials in our life? What is the purpose of that? Well, I believe, and I've always believed, that God gives us trials to discipline us. It's to teach us, to prepare us, to develop uh, fruit in our lives. So I love Hebrews 12, uh, 5 and 6. says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And verse 11 continues, for the, mo- for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. So what's important to understand here is discipline isn't punishment, right? It's an act of love. It's, it's personal development. It's growth. And its purpose is to develop fruit. So if you think about that, you know, in my life, who do I discipline, right? Well, it's my kids, right? Is is my discipline fun? <laughs> right? Not always, right? But but my goal and purpose, right, is for them to be mature, to develop fruit in their lives, to be growing, right, and preparing them for what God has for them. My employees, right? I have people that work for me, right? I discipline them so that they're fruitful, right? So that they can be productive and, and make an impact. So that is the purpose of discipline of, you know, that, that we do. And it, and it is about bearing fruit. So if you think about, okay, God's discipline is no different, right? That's what the verses are saying. God uses discipline as a demonstration of proof, actually, that he loves us to produce fruit. So if he's trying to produce the fruit of patience in our life, right? What might he do to help develop that, right? He's going to put really slow drivers in front of you, right? He might give you a spouse, right? That'll test your parent, your patience. Or if you really need to learn, he might give you kids, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the model, right? That's how God develops fruit through us through discipline. Well, what if, you know, if you think about the fruit of the spirit, right? Patience is one. The one right before it is peace, what if the fruit that God wants to develop in your life is peace? How might he go about doing that? What, what trial might you face? And what might the role of fear be in that? So now the other thing we need to understand about discipline is what happens if you're not learning the lesson that you're being disciplined for, right? So if I'm teaching my kids and they're not getting it, what am I going to do? I'm going to give it to them again, right? And if they're still not getting it, I'll take a different angle. We'll try something different. Still not getting it, we're going to raise the stakes, right? We're going to go bigger till they get this idea, till the discipline works. And, and God's discipline works similar to us. I really believe that if we miss the point in the trial, we're going to go through it again, right? This, there's fruit that's trying to be developed, so we need to kind of pay attention and learn from the discipline. So in my life, you know, as I reflect back over the years, God has been trying to develop fruit of peace in my life. I'm not crying today. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, you know there's there been lots of spots where he's worked on that, and I've really missed the lessons. 
And so uh, about eight years ago, God decided to get out a big two by four, right? He was going to have to hit me hard with this, get me <laughs> upside the head to, to learn this lesson. It was November 15th, 2012. I remember it like yesterday. I'd gone to the doctor. I was not feeling well. I had some tests done. And the doctor called me that evening. Well, your doctor calling you in the evening to give you test results usually isn't a good thing. And he told me that I had leukemia. And I remember it felt like a death sentence, that word. Um, But I'm here to tell you today it's not a death sentence, right? I'm alive. I'm with you. It's almost eight years later. And what I want to share with you today is just some of the things that God has taught me along this journey. Um, so, and, and fear is at the heart of it. And we all, we all deal with fear. Um, as, as a believer, Jesus knew we were going to deal with fear. Uh, there's more than 400 verses in the Bible that address it. And in John 14, 27, so context here, this is the Lord's Supper. Um, Judas had just gone out to betray him. And there's, there's a couple of great chapters in John where Jesus is giving them final instructions before they go out to the crucifixion of just what you need to be prepared for of what's coming. And this verse comes right after he tells them about the promise of the Holy Spirit. It says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, the disciples didn't have a clue of what fear they were going to face, right? They didn't even understand how they were going to have this peace, right? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. But Jesus knew that they were going to face it. And if they were going to face it, we were going to face it. So this morning, we're going to get practical. We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about fear and discuss what we can do uh, to experience this peace that Jesus tells us that we can have. So uh, let's start with some definitions, um, I've got two definitions from Bible dictionaries for you here. Uh, the first one, an attitude of anxiety or distress caused by concern over a threat to one's future. Second one's a little bigger. It's a, a fear is a, nat- a natural emotional response to a perceived threat to one's security or general welfare. It ranges in degree of intensity from a sense of anxiety or worry to one of utter terror. It can be a useful emotion when it leads to appropriate caution or measures that would guard one's welfare. On the other hand, fear can be a hindrance to the enjoyment of life if it lingers and overpowers other more powerful emotions such as love and joy. So what's interesting in here is, you know, fear can be useful, right? That, That what you're feeling can point you to good decisions or it can push you to a very different path, right? One that is that really affects you, right? It causes you down a path that overcomes the joy and the peace that Christ has for you. But the thing I want you to get that's common in both of these definitions, it's a threat to your future, your security, your general welfare, right? There's an aspect of the unknown. When you don't know the future, right, Something's gonna, you have a perception that something's going to harm you, that's where fear enters in. And for each of us this morning, you know, we all are in a very different spot. You know, your future and what risk you have in your future, is, we're all very different, right, in the things that we're facing. Some of you, it could be concern over COVID-19, right, for you or, or family members. Could be, you know, lost job, reduced income, how to provide, maybe how to make payments, you know, how to not lose your house or your car. Uh, you know, we've got family members that are potentially going to lose a business. Um, you know, maybe it's concern over how do I provide for my employees, on the other side, there's, there's people that are concerned about having meat, right? Uh, I mean, there's been like 
a run on chickens for backyard chickens this year just because people are concerned about having meat um, or freezers. You can't find freezers in the store. Um, you know, it could be political, concern of just what's happening, uh, loss of democracy or, or freedoms as we know it. Uh, might be concerned just what's happening, you know, in violence, which is protecting your family. There's a big, you know, again, increase in guns and ammunition right now. Uh, who's going to win the election? Other health issues, you know. Some of you, you know, things for your kids have seen lost opportunities through this. Uh, but we all have different things, right? You could be dealing with a, a rebelling child, a marriage that's falling apart, um, you know, difficult people in your life. We all have things that threaten our future. And for each of us, it's very different this morning. So the question for us is really, since we're going to face fear, Jesus knew we would, what do we do with that? So I'm going to give you three actions that I've learned and I practice in my life that God has taught me in, in dealing with fear. So the first one is recon- learning to recognize fear. And I know that may sound strange, may not be what you're expecting uh, in this moment, but hang with me. You see, fear is an internal thing. It's a condition of the heart. So my question is, when you look at a person, can you tell if they're afraid? Maybe, right? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, right? Because it's largely internal. So if you have, if you have two people wearing a mask, okay, are they afraid? I don't know. One of them could be. Maybe one isn't, right? You got two people stockpiling meat. Are they afraid? I don't know, right? I don't know what's going on inside. One of them might be. One of them might not be. We can't always tell what's going on in our heart by appearance, right? Our our actions don't necessarily demonstrate what's happening in our heart. So because fear is, is an emotion, right, it's something we need to learn to recognize in our lives before we can address it. And to demonstrate this, I want to give you, I want to talk about Elijah, right? So when you think about Elijah, you know, I think about, I mean, this guy is just a pillar, right? A pillar of faith. You know, the Jews are still waiting for, they leave an empty chair, right, at Passover for Elijah, uh, because Elijah is just, you know, bedrock of faith. So we're going to look at First uh, Kings 18 and 19. I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to kind of share some pieces with you. But the great thing about Elijah, God and Elijah had a neat relationship. It was based on the word go. God would say, Elijah, go here and do this. And Elijah went. If God said it, he did it, period. If God didn't say go, Elijah didn't go. That's how they worked. It was pretty cool. Um, so in chapter 18, Elijah's dealing with King Ahab. And if you remember, King Ahab is married to Jezebel, and we all know Jezebel. Um, and God had sent Elijah to him to tell him about a drought that was going to come for three years. And in 1 Kings 18, uh, I'm going to read starting at verse 17. God sent Elijah back to Ahab to tell him the drought was going to end. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, so this is the story, right, where God, is, he's setting up like the ultimate showdown, right? The prophets of Baal versus the prophet of God because uh, Jezebel's been killing the prophets of God, right? Elijah's 
about the only one left. Um, so they all gather, and Elijah even speaks to the Israelites. He says, you know, if the Lord, because they've been following Baal, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So he wanted a demonstration for everybody. Let's settle this once and for all. And if you remember, they take two bowls, right? So the prophets of Baal take a bowl, and Elijah takes a bowl, and they cut it up in pieces. They build, they both build an altar. Um, they, they put wood and, and the bowl on the altar. And for, from morning till noon, the prophets of Baal dance around and do whatever, calling upon Baal to come and consume the sacrifice. And he never shows up. And, and Elijah starts getting, you know, he's having fun. He starts taunting him, right? And uh, he's like, where's your God? Is he sleeping? Is he going to the bathroom? What's he doing? And uh, so then finally, it's Elijah's turn. So he builds the altar out of 12 stones, digs a trench around it, right? And he has them put buckets of water, so much water over the top of the, of the sacrifice that it fills up the trenches. And then... Um, and then this is great. So this is what Elijah, he calls upon the Lord. He says, O Lord, this is in verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all the things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, he is just a warrior, just a pillar of faith. You know, God sends him and he goes, right? And he just, he just his words is confidence and faith in the Lord, in the face of Ahab and these prophets. So then, Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel. And this is where the story gets interesting. So in chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Wow, right? After what he just saw God do, <laughs> he got this word, and he was terrified, and he ran. Right? And he's to the point of like, kill me, God. I just don't even want to live. I mean, he's just feeling sorry for himself, right? That he's getting picked on by Jezebel. So, so God sends an angel to him, right? Under the broom tree. And he, he twice, he send, gives him, feeds him with milk, or food and water. And he says, okay, you need this because you're going to take a journey. So for, so for 40 days and 40 nights, he journeyed up to Mount Horeb, to the mountain, Mount of God. So we pick it up then uh, in chapter 19, verse 9. So there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
Remember that relationship? How did, how did God and Elijah work? God said, go. Elijah went. God didn't send Elijah here. What are you doing here, Elijah? What would the proper response be? I was afraid. I ran away. Right? That, that's honest. That's truth. What does Elijah say? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. <laughs> Wine, right? I mean, <laughs> he's pointing, look at what they did. Nobody, you know, I've been jealous. He, he can't, he didn't even realize why he's there. So what does God say to him? Right? God's like, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what we've just done? Have you forgotten who I am? So God says to him, go out, go, there's his word, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And the, the word whisper um, actually could be translated, oh, where am I in my notes? <laughs> uh, it's like a thin silence, right? So it's this, there's actually just silence, and God meets him there. Um, and, well, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. Do you get this? He actually, when God said, go stand out, he didn't even do it. He stayed in the cave, right? So now God met him in this silence, and it's awful, right? God's awe. I mean, that's God's glory. He's, he here, finds him in the silence. He wraps his cloak around his face. He goes out, and he stands at the entrance. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I just showed you my glory, who I am. Again, same question. What are you doing here? What's Elijah's response? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophet with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Didn't learn a thing. (laughs) He just encountered God. And he's still living in the denial of what he's doing there. So what did God do? God said, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And that's another sermon. But, uh, but God's kind of sent him back, right, down his path. And, and what I want you to get in this is here he is, a man of God, right, Elijah, who he didn't have, when he knew the future, right, when God said go, there was no question of the future, right? He knew what God was going to do. There was no fear. He had faith. But when something happened and he didn't know the future, when God didn't say go, he had fear, right? There was, there was risk to his future, and he acted very poorly in it. So like Elijah, you know, we typically don't recognize our fear. Um, you know, we probably would never admit it, right? Elijah was making excuses, pointing to everybody else, right? And we kind of would tend to defend our actions much like he does. And I want to contrast that with David. So in Psalms 55, verses 4 and 5, David says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. 
David is aware of his fear, right? So now, what do you do with it is, is the question. But we need to recognize our fear so that we can deal with it. But here's the problem, right? Fear is an emotion. It's Father's Day, so I'm going to speak to the men here. Most men, we couldn't name an emotion if we had to, right? <laughs> Let alone recognize one we're feeling. Um, so how are we supposed to recognize fear? Elijah had stro- trouble recognizing it. How are we to do this? So I'm going to get practical with you guys. I'm going to show you how God has helped me to do that. I'm going to tell you some stories here. And at the end, I'm going to show you kind of what I found that I've had to do to recognize when fear is in my life, okay? So in the days following that call from the doctor, Solve suggested that I keep a journal, that I, I write down what's going on. Um, I'm not crying today. And, uh, <clears throat> and so what I'm going to share with you is the words that I wrote in those very first days as, as I was going through this, because I want you to kind of understand some of the fears that I've, I've dealt with. So I just received the phone call you never want to hear. The doctor said my lab test came back and my white blood cell count is 167,000. It's supposed to be like four. Um, The only thing that causes that is leukemia. The word takes my breath away. I need to see a specialist in the morning in Sioux Falls. Sylvie asks um, on the phone, or Sylvie's on the phone too, and she's the only one thinking. She asks if we should head up tonight and says, he says it's a good idea to get in right away in the morning. This is serious, he says. He mentioned something about a bone marrow transplant and to be prepared to stay a while. The initial thoughts that flood me are that I don't want to be missing for Solvay and the kids in these coming years. I don't have a fear of dying, but a fear of their life without me. How will they make it without me? No life insurance policy can replace the role of a father in their life. I feel the desire to be able to, to live long enough to see them all get married, knowing that I was able to train and disciple them in the way to live. <clears throat> all right, I guess I am crying. <laughs> um, Solva can't believe that the diagnosis is accurate. We know that our doctor is not a specialist, so hopefully it's something else. I don't doubt it, though. I know something's wrong. I'm scared about what lies ahead and how hard it might be. So the next morning, we meet with the doctor and learn that I likely have CML, a form of leukemia, that stays with you all your life. They don't seek to cure it, but keep it from advancing with a daily chemotherapy pill for the rest of your life. They put me under for a bone marrow biopsy and then put me in the hospital to start a more aggressive chemo treatment to get things under control. And then something amazing happened. I woke up. Uh, I woke up, I was in the hospital. I thought about Psalms 121, which Solveig had read to me that morning. And how my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I was really struck by the idea that the Lord is the shade on my right hand. He's standing right there, watching and protecting me. It was a wonderful day, with great encouragement, through many calls, texts, and emails. We're getting the word out, to get hundreds, even thousands, praying for us. Neater. Neater sent me a note about trusting in what the Lord is doing over our fears. I spent a lot of time pondering what it really means to trust the Lord. It's easy to trust when everything's going well, 
To trust when you don't know what's going to happen is another matter. And it's freeing. You just let him have his way and know that it's good. There's a huge piece in there. It's like a child trusts a parent. God is going to use this. I've often said that God gives us trials to develop character and prepare us for something he plans to do. I believed this then and I believe it now. I can trust what he is doing. The best analogy I have is the day I resigned my job at Schwantz. In an instant, all of the pressures and stress I carried were suddenly gone. Of course, they came back with my next job. (laughs) But I remember that feeling of just this instant release. That's what I'm feeling now, only not for my job, but for my whole life. Everything that seemed so important a moment ago suddenly doesn't matter. I'm uncomfortable in about a thousand ways. I still have stomach discomfort and bone pain in addition to the fatigue. However, I have great hope. I'm filled with great peace and joy and gratitude to the Lord. I sleep like a baby. You see, God showed me peace. Peace that I had not fully comprehended. Absolute peace. I can still close my eyes today. And I remember it. I can feel it. I can taste it. That that peace of, of knowing that there was absolutely nothing I could do that I had to rely on God. So in the days that followed, but here's the thing, right? In the days that followed, once I got out of the hospital, I got lots of moments to test this new piece <laughs> that God showed me. So I got back home, <clears throat> got home right in time for Thanksgiving. Friday morning after Thanksgiving, I go to the clinic for my labs. I go early and there's hardly anyone there. Once I'm done, there's a huge line to check in. I stop dead in my tracks, not sure what to do because my immune system is non-existent at this point. I know I don't want to walk by everybody, so I head into the mall and walk around. I kind of ducked outside and walked around in my car. (laughs) You know, I just didn't know what to do. I was panicked. I I just froze. On Sunday, I went to uptodate.com and read about CML, which my case manager had suggested. I find that as I'm reading it, I'm awfulizing. If you don't know the word awfulizing, it's when when you have something, you create this worst-case scenario in your head. So I'm awfulizing and reading all the things that can go wrong rather than focusing on how much hope there is in this disease. I'm filled with fear and need to stop reading. I have to give my fears to the Lord and focus on trusting him for what he's doing. I know that he's in control. On Monday, when I heard that my counts had dropped even further, so now we're kind of dropping counts, um, instead of going up, I felt discouraged and felt fear creep in. It took me several hours that night until I finally could get my perspective right. I needed to remember that God is in control. I do believe this in, in realizing that learning to trust him is something that I will have to walk in for a long time. Even when things are confusing or scary, I need to trust. Once I get this right, I feel great again. My peace is back. On Tuesday, I get a call from my doctor and learn that I have an additional mutation in my chromosomes that isn't normal. They want to switch my chemo to something newer that has more medically significant side effects. Sylvie and I work to get the new chemo and at the same time get into Mayo for a second opinion. The process of getting the new medicine approved and shipped is extremely difficult and frustrating. I'll be to Mayo before my medication arrives. At Mayo, they explain that I have a complex translocation, (laughs) and that complex generally isn't good. They've seen two somewhat similar cases, and neither went well. However, Mayo hasn't had a patient with this exact form, and they're treating 500 CML patients. 
As he told me this, I felt my chest tighten. This was very hard to hear. I wanted to have the easy case, the normal case, not something they hadn't seen before. While, I was ta- while he was talking with another doctor, he referred to me as an interesting case. <laughs> I didn't appreciate that. He decided to keep me on the same medication that I had been on, however. So as we were driving home, it occurred to me that all of my frustration in trying to get the new medication approved and shipped was me trying to control things versus trusting the Lord. I was meant to stay on the same medication, and it was the Lord working for my best. There's a huge lesson in this, in that whenever I feel frustrated, I need to recognize this in me, trying to control things and not trusting in the Lord. Okay, so I give you that because that's been the picture of my life the last seven and a half years. I've learned there are a few things to watch out for to help me recognize fear in my life. And if you could throw that slide up, that'd be great. So there's, there's kind of five areas that I want to talk about. So the first is anxiety, right? If I'm feeling stressed, anxious, right, that is a sign to me, right, that something's wrong. Okay, then I'm trying to deal with something that I maybe shouldn't be dealing with, that I need to, that I need God in this case. The second would be frustration. This is a good one for me. I feel there. When I'm upset, when something isn't going right, that's usually a heart issue for me, right? I have to kind of step back and say, what's going on inside here? Why am I frustrated? What is behind this? The third one's interrupted sleep. I love Love, love, Proverbs 3, 24. It says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. God wants us to have sweet sleep, right? So if I'm having a hard time falling asleep, if I'm waking up in the night, right? If I'm not sleeping well, there's there's something going on inside of me that I need to figure out, right? So these are kind of all indicators that I've learned, right? When I have peace and when it disappears, these are indicators for me that something is at work on that piece, and it's usually me. Um, fixated thoughts. So am I dwelling on something? Um, Matthew 6, 23, 22 to 23. So this is in the middle of, of Jesus' teaching. He's teaching about, um, you know, not serving God and money. He's teaching us about contentment. And right in the middle of it, uh, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What are you focusing on, right? So it, if it's the weekend, right, if it's a weeknight, where do your thoughts go? What are you dwelling on? right? What, what do they keep coming back to? And I found that for me, like if my thinking gets pulled here, right, and it keeps coming back there, keeps coming back there, that's a sign that I have something I need to deal with. And I've learned in those cases, okay, if in, sometimes it's giving it to God, but sometimes where my thinking comes, it's about somebody else, right? And so the rule of thumb I've learned in here is once I'm aware, once I've identified what's going on, Right? I first go to God with it if he, you know, if it's spiritual. But if it's personal, if it's still there a day later, I have to deal with it. Right? I have to call somebody. I have to go seek them out and resolve this. Um, because if it lingers, in, in the, in the point of this verse of the eye, 
what you see consumes you, right? Where your eye and your focus is consumes your whole body, your whole thinking, all of you. And that was what happened to Elijah, right? What did Elijah see? He saw Jezebel was going to kill him. It consumed him. His whole body was full of darkness. He was not focused on the Lord. Okay, so, and then the last one. Thanks, Marjorie. Man. Oh, sorry. The last one, uh, and this is the sneakiest one, uh, heaviness. So I have found uh, like three times over the last seven and a half years where I've been in this spot of just, hmm, I just don't have peace. And I can't quite put my finger on it. And what I've learned is I just have this sense of heaviness, right? And, and, and even if I can't tell you why I have this sense of heaviness, to me it's on the list because the way you, you, the way you counter all five of these is the same, okay? So I'm just telling you, the other thing, the other watch out is if you sense just heaviness in your life for whatever reason that you just can't quite put your finger on. Okay, so those are some watch outs that'll help you recognize when you've got some fear in your life. And, and the reason this is important, because when we hold on to this, <clears throat> when we don't address these, we're saying we can do it on our own, right? And that's pride, right? So <laughs> it takes our attention off of Christ. So the first step, right, is admit you have a problem. <laughs> uh, like David. So what did David do? We saw in Psalms 55, right, that David had fear. So let's go a few verses ahead. Verse 16, he says, But I call to God. And the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Right? So it's not bad to, to be aware of fear in your life. The question is what you do with it. And so that's where we're going to look at action number two here. So once we've learned to recognize fears in our life, the key here now is to get grounded in truth. And I love Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. They say, this is uh, God, I... I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day? (laughs) Who are you? Who are you? What have you done? Right? I have created all things. Why are you so afraid of all of these things? So we got to get grounded, right? And that's the beginning. That's why this verse is so good. Who are you? <laughs> I, I am the one. I am the your maker. I have created all. So for me, it starts with this understanding and, and just recognition who is God. He's the creator of the universe, the author, creator of life. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's eternal, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, holy, good, Loving, just, he's worthy to be praised. This is who God is. And that's where I need to start. And then from there, the big question, is God in control? And so what I have to do, what what I found that I do whenever I'm dealing with fear, and and this is what I did in those early days, when I felt, I'd be sitting at my desk and I would feel fear rise up that I was going to die of this cancer. And I'd take that and I'd say, All right, here's what I believe. I believe that God is real. I believe he is the author, the creator of life. He's created all things, right? He's created me. 
I believe in his son, Jesus, that Jesus is the son of God, that he was perfect, that he died, he rose again, he conquered death, right? And I believe that he lives in me, that he's given me his spirit, that that is truth, that I believe God is in control, that he can be trusted. And that act frees you every time, every time, whether it's heaviness that lingers, been on you for weeks, right? Whether it's fear that comes in an instant, we get grounded in the truth, right? And we speak it. I have to speak it, okay? I have to say the words, get myself grounded in truth. If Elijah, if Elijah would have stopped, right? It said, oh, Jezebel's going to kill me. Wait a minute. There's God. He is the author, the creator. He controls all things. God, I can't do this, right? I, I can't. Do, and, and that's the other thing I'll speak. God, here's what I'm anxious about, right? I'm afraid of this. I'm concerned about this. I have this heaviness. I give it to you. I can't do this, but you can. You're in control. Please take it. If Elijah would have done that, he probably wouldn't have been under a broom tree. So for me, that is how, what I have to do daily, weekly, monthly. This is the ongoing life practice to move away from fear to faith, to freedom, to to peace in our lives. That peace that Jesus told us we would have through his Holy Spirit that he was giving us. So then number three, last action, is remembering and celebrating. Joshua 4, I love Joshua Joshua 4, what he did, verse 21. And he said to the people of Israel, this is right after they had crossed over the Jordan, said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in the times to come, what do these stones mean? Remember, he was piling up 12 big memorial stones. What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So they created this big memorial out of rocks, right, to remember what God did, his faithfulness, so that as they came upon it and looked upon it, and they would teach their children, what does this mean? This is what God has done. So one of the things we've done in our family, we have this box um, that we've decorated and we put stones in it. This stone, the big one, is a stone to remember God's healing from leukemia. I don't have leukemia. I'm, I'm healed of it. I've been off my chemo for a month. Um, this stone is a reminder to us of God's faithfulness, what he's done. <clears throat> this is a stone uh, we put in the box last year, year ago, January. We were driving home in January, got in a nice storm, wasn't watching the weather. Hadn't, it was terrible, horrible. Uh, spent hours and hours and hours on the road and Finally got to a spot. We, we got off the interstate and got to a spot. And it was dark and windy and raining. And um, the car started moving on its own. 
And uh, I remember getting it to stop, pulling over, getting out of the car, unable to stand hardly. And just, I didn't know what to do. And the weather showed it was building worse behind us. We were in the middle of nowhere. I had no idea how we were going to get home. I remember getting in the car, and Sully and I were like, it just was not clear what to do. And at, at the time, I had been studying this question. So when, when Jesus walked on water, and when he calmed the storms, did he did that? You know, he's 100% man, 100% God. Did he do that in his humanity or his divinity? Right? And so, <laughs> Yes. So I remember, but, you know, Jesus told us we would do even greater things because we have his spirit in him, right? So, and I remember, what was his lesson to the disciples in the boat, right? He gets in this boat in all the storms. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And so as I'm sitting in the car, that's what came to me. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And so I prayed. I said, you know, God, your spirit is in me. I have no idea how to get home. I, it doesn't seem possible. God, would you make a way? Would you change the atmosphere? Would you change the roads? Would you change the shape and size of these droplets? Would you change how my tires are functioning on the road? Because I don't know what to do. And I felt peace just come over me. I was actually joyful. I was like excited to see what God was going to do. And I'm driving on roads that I just can't figure out how to stay on. And they changed. I watched it. And as I come slowly, I'm like, I feel like the atmosphere is changing. I feel like the road's responding different. And we got home at 11.59 that night. <laughs> Still that night. And, uh, but behind us, it never improved. The, the road conditions didn't improve. They only got worse. I don't know how we got home. God took us home. So this is a stone that reminds us, God's faithfulness, that we too can walk on water. So that's my encouragement to you. And I'm going to, I hope you leave encouraged today. Um, let's pray. Father, I just thank you. You are so good. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for your love. The love you have for us, Father, we just can't even comprehend. We just thank you, Lord, that Whatever seems big in our lives, Lord, is nothing to you. I just pray, Lord, for everybody listening today and watching, will you just show us, Lord, that whatever we're facing that seems so big, just show us, Lord, how big you are. Of who are we, Lord, to take this on by ourselves? So I just pray, Lord, for just your encouragement, that we would understand your spirit and the power that we have through it. In the name of Jesus, amen.